Join me in Romans chapter 12. We're going to continue our study in verse 2. And um, one of the things we're going to look at this morning is we kind of left off with one verse last week. And we, we looked at this pleading, this begging, this um, urging um, that Paul was doing in verse 1. But as you follow the context into verse 2, there's actually three things that, that Paul is pleading for. And this is, remember that one of the things that we talked about last week was this, this word beseech, or some versions will have um, the word urge um, there in verse 1. And um, one of the things that we wanted to bring out was the fact that this word uh, is often translated plead, beg, implore, or urge. There's some uh, intensity to this word. There's some, um, you know, he, he really, really wants them to respond to what he's He's urging them to do. And so um, the only thing that we see is that it's in the present tense. It's got some immediacy. Do it right now. Don't wait. Don't think about it. Do these things that I'm urging you to do. Um, and he also puts that, that word as the first word in the Greek sentence, which, which adds emphasis. So there's a, there's a lot of intensity around this word. And that's one of the things that we, we drew out last week. Um, but the other thing that we mentioned, and we want to make a careful note, is it's not a command. Okay, so it's, there's some intensity, some, some begging and pleading and entreating, if you want to say it, you know, as in many ways as we can. Um, but it's not a command. He's not saying just do it, just get it done. And there's a reason for that, I believe, is, is he's appealing to the persuasiveness of the truth of what God has done for them. Okay, that's what he's, he's, he's hoping that that becomes the motivator in a positive response to the exhortations and the commands that he's now going to give in, in verse 2. But it's this idea that we looked at last week, this faith presentation of our bodies. And that should hearken us back to Romans 6, that we are dead to sin, we're alive unto God, and now we present our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness for his good pleasure and use. And so our life as a Christian now becomes about, are you presented to the Lord? Are you by faith presenting yourself as one who is alive from the dead? That's what we're talking about here. And so Paul bases this beseeching, um, if you remember in verse 1, on the mercies of God. Everything that's come before. So he's dragging everything with him into chapter 12 that we've studied through chapters 1 through 11. Largely probably referencing this salvation package that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what's going to happen is now this. He's going to take this doctrinal truth that we've learned. He's going to take this beseeching and urging. There's things that are important to Paul in these first two verses. And then as we get into verse 3, we're going to see why he's so interested. Why he's so excited. Why he wants to urge us to respond to truth. Because it's going to have some practical ramifications. We get into verses 3 through 8. We're going to look at spiritual gifts in the body. And see, these things have to be in place in order to effectively administer spiritual gifts in the body of Christ and build up his church. We get to verse 9 and following through the end of the book. It's going to be activity and conduct as it relates to our society. Not only believers, but also unbelievers. And so this is so important. This is why Paul is intensely begging and pleading first, as we looked last week, to present your bodies as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice to God, which, by the way, makes sense. It's logical. That's what the word reasonable means. That if Jesus Christ died for you and rose again, and if Jesus took you into his death 
with him so that you died to sin, you were, you were raised to newness of life to the Father, it only makes sense that you would now present your bodies to him as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. And so now we look at this section, uh, this second um, exhortation, and it's really more than an exhortation, it's a command. Um, in verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so the second thing that we see Paul is pleading for in this passage is don't be conformed to the, to the world. Um, this word conform means to fashion alike, to conform to the same pattern outwardly. In fact, the word itself denotes external change without necessarily reflecting an internal change. Okay, So we're talking about external actions, this, this fashioning according to external actions. And one of the things that we learn about both of these commands in verse 2 is that they're both in the passive voice, which means it's something that happens to us, not something that we do. We don't, we don't, in other words, we don't actively go out and conform ourselves to the world or to this age, but there's a way that we allow it to happen to us. There's a way that, that the, the age fashions us or makes us like it externally, impacts or influences us. And so there's a, there's a passivity um, about this word, but we allow it to happen. And so what he's basically saying is don't allow this to happen to you. And we'll kind of look at this in more detail. Um, again, this is a command against it. And what we have to understand is that this, this age, and we're going to talk about the, the translation world is actually not a very good translation. We'll make an argument for that here in a second. But that this age is proactively trying to control your external um, view, basically, your external actions, your external conduct. And we'll kind of look and see what that uh, looks like here. But this translation, world or age, what is the best translation? Well, I, I think that world is probably not the best translation. In fact, depending on what version you have, your, your version may translate it age. And the reason for that is the Greek word here is ion, which means age. Um, it refers to an age or a time period. It doesn't refer to as, as what world cosmos, which is a very familiar word. Um, it's not the word cosmos here. That typically refers to, to people or space. So we're talking about an age. We're talking about a time period. And what it's saying is don't let the age that you live in fashion you externally. Don't let the age that you live in fashion you or, or mold you into its, its image. In fact, I like um, what one Bible translation, uh, his, his paraphrased paraphrase verse says this, stop assuming an outward expression that does not come from within you and is not representative of what you are in your inner being, but it's patterned after this age. See, there's something in this age, there's something in every time period in which every Christian has ever lived that's proactively trying to mold or fashion or shape you. And you know, one of the other reasons I don't like the translation world here is because many times we think that it's just talking about the sinful world. In fact, when we look at verse two, we think, oh, well, don't let the world, you know, all those, all those unbelievers and bad people and bad things out there, don't let that fashion you. And when you, when you actually understand it to age, you know that it's general enough to apply to Christianity as well. 
The Christian culture that we live in, don't let anything about this age fashion you externally. Do you know that this age also desires the use of your physical bodies? That's what we're, this is the alternative here. This is the age taking your physical bodies and externally doing what it wants to do with it. And that only happens when we present ourselves to sin rather than present our bodies to God. And so this is, that's probably our, if you want to say that's our action, we're presenting ourselves to sin. And when we do that, the age will fashion you. The age will mold you. These are all the things that we see. And so um, we may not be um, fashioned externally to what the culturally um, accepted form of Christianity is. And what I mean by that is so many times in Christianity, there's a certain mold that Christians in churches like to squeeze each other in. You know, and, and we laugh about those of bygone eras. You know, you, do you remember there was a time in Christianity where the piano was considered a sinful instrument? Like, I mean, literally, if you touched it, whoo, I'm playing with fire there. And the piano. Do you know that the age changed to where some people today believe that's the only spiritual instrument you can play? in a worship service? Am, am I telling the truth? I mean, that's exactly what happens. Now, what changed? Did, did we discover new Bible verses that changed our think, thinking on that? Did we, uh, did we understand the Greek better? And so now we know that it's an okay instrument? No, what changed is the age. And see, we laugh about those bygone era things, but rest assured that that's a temptation for each one of us as we sit here today, that we, we have this, this tendency to be fashioned or molded by even Christian culture as to what's spiritual, what's not, what's godly, what's not. We can go down the list, you know, um, anybody play cards? You know, it's so funny because now the, the, that used to be, I mean, if you touched a pair, if you had a, had a deck of cards in your house, you were a sinful creature like the, the pastor came over. You'd hide your deck of cards somewhere so he wouldn't see it and kick you out of the church. Now, you know, now people are promoting family game night, right? Christians are promoting, promoting family game night. And what are some of the games that Christians play? Well, we play with cards, spades, hearts, you know. I don't know, is poker still kind of on the line there? I don't know, I mean... But, but technically, could you play poker, I guess? You know, I mean, the, these are the kind of things that fashion our age. And it's, it's so interesting that we've got to understand that that is still something that is capable in our culture. That is still something that's capable as you sit here today that we can be fashioned not only by secular society. I mean, that's, that's a gimme. That's a gimme. That's, that's constantly going. But to understand that even Christian culture and age try to mold you in such a way. And here's what it looks like. It becomes legalism. It becomes legalism. Because now it's only concerned about external conformity, not an internal change. You see, and that's one of the things that he's warning against here. And this is one of the things that Paul is pleading for. Don't be molded or conformed. Stop. You you might say, stop being molded by the external fleeting fashions of this age, whether secular or Christian, and, and it begs the question, how does that happen? Well, we just spent an entire series on the epidemics of Christianity detailing how this happens. This happens 
um, very, very carefully and craftily, but you might summarize it by this. We just get distracted by everything going on in our life. We get distracted by money. We get distracted by business. We get distracted by pleasure. We get distracted by trials. We get distracted by what we view as true success. And then we make an effort to get true success. And then we realize we're not even going in the right direction for true biblical success. We've bought into this American dream. And so there's all of these things that are fashioning our external behavior, what the decisions we make, the choices we make, the way we want to appear to other people, the things that we say we're against, the things that we say we're for. You know, one of the things I found interesting years ago is when the whole Harry Potter book craze came out and, and, and just almost immediately the entire Christian community down Harry Potter. This is evil, it's sinful, it's of the devil. And, and regardless of what your opinion was on that, what, what, was, what was fascinating to me is when somebody told me that it was of the devil, that we shouldn't let our kids do it, and I would ask them, why? Can you explain that to me? You know how many people just looked at me flabbergasted like, well, didn't you hear so-and-so say it was bad? That's not a reason. <laughs> that's, that's being fashioned according to this Christian age. That is you just lining up externally, me just lining up externally with whatever the, the group says, and, and to live life with a group mob mentality is dangerous. In fact, it's not biblical. In fact, we need to, to go back to what Paul's about to say and understand that there's something more important than just external conformity. And that is legitimate external change that springs from an internal transformation. See, That's what he's talking about here. That's where he's going with this. And yet so many times we as Christians just just become actors taking cue cards, reading the script that somebody else has written for us instead of actually knowing and understanding what we believe and what true spirituality looks like. It doesn't look like external conformity, becoming a good actor, going to Christian thespian school, learning how to perform, for certain people or certain groups. It's actually something real, not fake. See, that type of Christianity is fake. That type of Christianity won't last. That type of Christianity is unstable. That type of Christianity is inconsistent. Acting, taking cue cards, reading somebody else's script, that's fake. That's phoniness. The Bible calls that hypocrisy. When we, don't you want something real? Don't we want something real? I mean, that's what we, we live for. There's something real that God has done, and that's what we're going to get to in this next phrase. This is what we want, this third thing that Paul is pleading for. It's this idea of being transformed from the inside out. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this word transform means to transform or to transfigure or to change one's form. And what it refers to is that invisible process, that internal process that happens inside of a Christian. That's what we're talking about here. So instead of being fashioned with just your external actions being impacted, Paul says rather be transformed internally. Be changed internally, that'll impact your external actions. And so conformity refers largely to an outward or external pattern, whereas transformation describes a change from the inside out. 
Again, this is an internal process of growth eventually reflected in external form. And this is more of an emphasis on being who you are in Christ rather than just doing. See, that? that's a subtle distinction, but that's so important. Who are you in Christ? Are you resting in your identity in Christ? Are you resting in the fact that you are accepted in the beloved, that you are complete in Christ, that you have all the resources of the God of the universe to live the Christian life at your disposal. You're indwelt by the Spirit of God. I could go on and on and on. That's who you are. That's what you possess. So instead of trying to fake it until you make it, why don't we learn what we have and start being who we are? Start relying upon the resources that we already possess. And that's what we're talking about here. See, this isn't just taking the cue cards. This isn't just doing what we're supposed to be doing because so-and-so does it or so-and-so said we should do it. No, no, this is actually thinking mentally engaged with the truth of God's word and based on the mercies of God, we wanna be transformed. Based on what God has done, we want transformation. That's what we're looking for. It's an interesting word in the Greek because this word transform is only used four times in the New Testament. Now, here's what's, what's really interesting about it is it's always in the passive voice. Every use of the word is in the passive voice. That means you are not transforming yourself. See, conformity externally, you're doing it. You're the one doing it. You're on stage, you gotta perform, you gotta pick it up, you gotta clean it up, you gotta get on it, you gotta be, you know, it on a stick, you gotta figure it out, and you gotta crank it out in your own strength. Not transformation. Not transformation. Transformation, somebody else is doing the transforming work to us. Doing the transforming work through us. And I'll give you a guess, who do you think is the active person doing the transforming work? If you had one guess, And I know it's going to sound like a Sunday school answer, but that's okay. It's God. God is the one doing the transforming work. In fact, of the four uses that we see in the New Testament, I'll tell you what they are. Romans 12, 2, obviously right here. We also see it in Matthew 17, 2, Mark 9, 2. Both of those references are describing Jesus's transfiguration uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration. When it says he was transformed, it's the same word used here. So his, his, his glory it was shown forth through his human body. That's what we're talking about here. It's that concept. And then there's one other place, and we've got to turn here. Hold your finger in Romans 12, 2, and go with me to 2 Corinthians 3, 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And so this is, we're going to hold our finger here for a second and go back and forth between Romans um, 12, 2 and here because we want to talk about our part in this process, and we want to talk about God's part in this process. But the first thing we want to see in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is the actor, the one who is doing the transforming work. And we picked that up clearly in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says this, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so who is the one doing the transforming work in and through us? Well, it's the Spirit of God. That's what we see in 2 Corinthians 3.18. 
And so it's clearly God who does this work. It's clearly God who does the work from the inside out. But what part or what role do we play? We'll go back to Romans 12 too, because there's an added phrase here um, that we see in the text. He says, but be transformed. And what does that next phrase say? By or through, by the renewing of your mind. So that's our part is, is renewing of their mind. Well, let's, let's look at what this means. The renewing of the mind means to renew qualitatively. Well, that's one of those definitions that doesn't help us too much. <laughs> but it's, it's a renewing or a renovation which makes a person different than in the past. It's, it's a change, if you want to say, it's a change in the way we think. It's a change in the way we evaluate life the way we evaluate trials, the way we evaluate even success. It, it's a change. It's a difference. And what is to impact or affect that change of thinking? Well, we're going to see it's the word of God. And so what ends up happening, and we've got to realize this as Christians, the tendency as a Christian, the tendency of any person that lives on, on this earth is to think unbiblically. That's Our natural default mode, we will typically respond to things in life, trials, success, people, um, problems, conflicts. We respond unbiblically. We respond thinking incorrectly. And so we have to come to the word of God and get God's perspective, God's divine viewpoint on things that we engage in life. And, and when we see the word of God and we see that God says it this way and I've been thinking this way, Our part is to respond to the word of God and say, you know what? I'm wrong. God's right. And I'm okay with that. And and, and so many times, like I, I hate to put words in your mouth. Let me just put words in my mouth. So many times I've been wrong for so long that I just want to keep defending my wrong position. And even in view of the fact that the word of God completely disagrees with me. Because I don't, I don't want to be right. I just want to win the argument, right? I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to function according to truth. I just want to win the argument. I don't want to be corrected because being corrected stinks. It doesn't feel good. So I just want to win the argument. And I just want to justify the way that I think, the way that I feel, the way that I act, the way that I respond. I just want to justify it. And see, when we renew our mind, we're, we're, we're confronted with the word of God and we say, you know what? I have not been thinking correctly. This is the way to think. This is true. What I've been believing is false. And so as we look at that, how do we do this? How do we renovate our mind or our thinking? Well, we occupy ourselves. This is why when we go to 2 Corinthians 3.18 and and just kind of have these verses play off of each other, we learn a lot because they both describe different aspects of of the same thing. We occupy ourselves with Jesus Christ through the revelation of the word. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. That's the very first thing that he says in verse 18. He says, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And that phrase, beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Lord. I think the amplified version says, beholding Jesus Christ in the word is kind of the idea that we're talking about. This is how we renew our mind. 
This is how we knew it. We, we go back to the word of God. We occupy ourselves with Jesus Christ. We consider the mercies of God. We consider the doctrine, the truth of what God has done for us. See, this all fits together as we look at it in context. It fits right there with verse one. And so our part, if you want to say, how do you renew your mind or how are you transformed by the spirit of God? Well, our part is by renewing our mind through God's word and 2 Corinthians 3.18, by beholding the, the glory of the Lord again through his word. This is taking in, if you want to describe it a different way, it's, it's taking in the word of God and it's adjusting our thinking to it. It's, it's being exposed to the word of God, taking it in and responding to it. it you know, it's, it's not just enough to take notes, right, on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or a Sunday night and say, well, I'm taking in the word of God. No, it's taking it in with the desire to respond to it. It's taking it in with a desire to to respond by faith or possibly by faith, which will lead to a a different action. But it's this, this goal, this desire to say, what do you have in it for me today, Lord? What do you have in your word for me to respond to today? Where does my thinking need to be changed? Because as we sit here, and it's not even a critical comment, everyone in this room needs their thinking changed, at least in one area. That's, and that's being gracious. I, I mean, well, I hate, to, I hate to put you on my standard. I mean, that would be gracious for me. Uh, maybe you only have one thing. Wink, wink, right? So maybe you only got one thing that you need your thinking changed on. But we all sit here in need of this. We all sit here today standing in need of God to correct our thinking in some area or another. And see, this is what we're talking about by renewing your mind. Do you want to be transformed from the inside out and stop being a fake, phony Christian that's just acting uh, the way you think you're supposed to act? Do you actually want it to come from the inside out? It's got to start here in a very small way. Start responding to the word of God. Start taking it in with a goal to respond to it, to take it at face value, to begin to trust the Lord for his resources to free you from sin's power rather than all of our humanly devised strategies of, well, if I wake up at 6 a.m. and I read my Bible for 30 minutes and then I pray for 30 minutes, then I know I'm going to have a good day. How do you know you're going to have a good day if you're not relying upon the Lord at 3 p.m. when actually you need to rely upon him just as much as you did when you were praying and studying at 6.30, right? And so this is what we're talking about, adjusting our thinking. And what is God's part? Well, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Lord is going to transform you into his image. As you behold the Lord Jesus in his word, that's what 2 Corinthians 3, 18 says, he's going to transform us into his image. You want to be more like Christ? Don't take your cue cards from other Christians. Start to respond to the Lord. Start to intake. Start to enjoy Jesus Christ in his word. Start to respond to his word. The Spirit of God is going to begin to transform you into his image. That's God's part. So in summary, verse two, don't let the age conform you from without, but let the Lord transform you from within. That's the deal. We want an inside out transformation, not just a phony external going through the motions, looking the right way, smelling the right way, talking the right way. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for something much more dramatic than this. So can you see why this was so important to the apostle Paul? 
Can you see why he's urging and pleading and begging? And he doesn't want to command because he wants us to respond with the right attitude, be motivated and persuaded by the truth of what God has done for you in Christ. Can you see why this was so important to him, why he would just plead and just beg? Because this is where true spiritual growth happens. And this is the basis for which all of the conduct stuff that comes starting in verse three following is based upon. If, if we don't have this right, we shouldn't even go on to um, verse 3. We should just keep reviewing the first 12 chapters over and over again. It's, it makes me laugh because I, so tonight we're, I'm sharing an update on Liberia. One of my, one of my um, friends that I've developed there, a pastor friend of mine, he is uh, teaching through the book of Galatians. And um, <laughs> Galatians is six chapters. Okay, so six chapters. And um, when I was at his church a year ago, he was teaching in Galatians. <laughs> and so I said, so what are you teaching now? He said, I'm still teaching Galatians. And I said, what, what verse are you on? And he said, I'm, I'm in chapter 3, verse 25. And I said, man, you're worse than me. Good night. And I said, so what's taking you so long? He says, well, well if, and this is just the culture. He said, well, if I feel like they're not getting it one week. I just teach the same thing the next week. And, um, you know, but, but in a, I, I, I joke, I mean, we, we would never get away with that, right, in America, anywhere. You couldn't do that. But in a sense, that's how we mentally should think. If we're not getting it before verse 3, we need to get it. We need to get it before we turn that page to the next verse, because otherwise we're just running about with our, like chickens with our heads cut off, just trying to do a bunch of behavior without taking advantage of the resources that we have in Christ. Now, there's a reason. We have an additional reason in verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. For what purpose? That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And, you know, this, this word prove just means to test or approve. Um, it, you might say it to, to understand, to discern um, and so in terms of proving the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God, it means to be able to ascertain the will of God in our lives, to, to understand the will of God in our life. And, and so this isn't going to happen when we're just part-time acting, trying to externally conform to whatever we think people are fashioning us according. It's going to happen as we're presenting our bodies as those alive from the dead and as we're occupying ourselves with the Lord Jesus and responding to him in the word. As the spirit of God is transforming us into his image, we can actually understand the will of God in our life. I I cannot tell you, and those of you that are adults, you know exactly what I'm talking about um, because because I used to ask the same question when I was a young man. I would go to people that I respected and said, can you tell me the will of God for my life? Can you? I want to know God's will. I want to know God's will. And I, and I can't tell you just over the years how many times I've asked that question and also attempted to answer that question. Here it is. Romans 12, 1 and 2. You want to know God's will for your life? Here it is. Present your bodies to the Lord as those alive from the dead. Do not be conformed to this age. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When you do that, you'll be able to understand the will of God. In fact, one of the things that's interesting is when Paul is praying for the Colossians in chapter one, verse nine of Colossians, Paul, one of the prayer requests, one of the things that Paul was praying for his church, and I would encourage you, you know, parents and leaders of this church that we need to be praying this for people, for our kids and for our spouses and for our friends. And that is, he prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom 
and understanding. Was there something that happened in your life this week that you really wish you knew for beyond a shadow of a doubt what God's will was when you made a decision? And if not this past week, just wait and come talk to me next week, right? There's, there's decisions constantly that we make that we just wish. We just, we just would plead. We would give anything. We, and we joke. We say, God, I wish you would just ride it up into the clouds. Just give me the message. And so I want to do what you want to do, but I don't know what it is. It's either this or this, and I don't know which way to go. And yet right here, it tells us how we can understand and know the will of God. And it has to do largely, if we can summarize it, by being in fellowship with the Lord, relying upon the Lord, walking by faith, all of these things factor in. So it's not, it's not just at a crisis moment, I need the will of God, but it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of dependence upon him where I'm walking and living and breathing the very will of God for my life. See, and since our age is trying to fashion us into a certain image, a certain way of thinking, if we could know the will of God and distinguish that in our life, wouldn't that be huge? Wouldn't that be just awesome in, in everything that we did? And that's really obviously the goal um, here. And so notice that God's will is described a couple different ways. It's described as good, meaning profitable or useful. I would say that knowing his will is profitable and useful, especially um, on decisions we make, that it's, that we would, uh, that it's acceptable, meaning it's well-pleasing, and then meaning that it's perfect, uh, finished, or complete. In fact, I like what the Amplified Bible says here. It actually combines all of these aspects. It says, so that you may prove for yourselves what is the good and acceptable, perfect will of God, even the thing which is good and acceptable and perfect in his sight for you. See how it combines both of those things. This is God's perfect, acceptable, and good will for you. Wouldn't you like to make those decisions in your life more consistently? I would. I would, I would just love to make those decisions consistently walking in the will of God. And see, this is why it's far better to learn to present your body to the Lord and allow him to reveal his will to you than to tell him what you're going to do. Or, or just decide what you're going to do and just go do it. See, that, that's the thing. Like, what if, what if you showed up to a restaurant Again, using that wait staff example, what if you showed up to the restaurant and the waiter or waitress didn't even concern themselves with what you wanted, brought you out, I joked last week, you know, brought, brought me out a plate of broccoli, brought me out uh, a Sprite, and it's like, I don't want a broccoli, I wanted a hamburger and I wanted a Coke, you know, why are you bringing me this stuff? And what if a, what if a waiter or waitress just went vogue on you one day uh, at a restaurant we, then we would understand what Christianity looks like to God a lot of the times. Just going rogue, doing our own thing. And so what's better? I, purport that, I just propose that to you today. Presenting your bodies to the Lord and allowing him to reveal his will to you or just telling him what you're going to do with your own body. And clearly we know the answer to that. It's much better to be presented to the Lord walking by faith. Now, that begs the question as we get into verse three, because what use does God have for these bodies? I mean, sometimes I feel like, you know, I read that, that God wants to use my bodies, and I'm thinking, man, he got the raw end of this deal. And has he seen some of these bodies out here? Has he seen some of the issues that people have with their physical bodies? Like, what, what on earth could he use, or why would he want to use these bodies? What, what uh, use or goal does God have for transformation? Well, 
one of the areas that we're going to see as we get into the next section here in verses 3 through 8 is he wants to use spiritual gifts in physical bodies of believers to build up his church. That's one of the uses he wants to get out of it. That's why he wants to use, one of the uses that he wants to use our body. And so as we get to verse 3, we see, um, we read this in verse 3. For, for I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And so Paul says uh, something through grace. Notice he, he says it through grace. You know, it's one of, the, one of those things, uh, unfortunately, over the years that I've met people that um, can explain grace, who understand grace, who can exegete it from the Greek, who can explain great passages. But then when it comes to their life and extending grace to other people, non-existent. They can explain it really well. They know it in and out. They know how to define it. They know lots about it. But in terms of exercising it to other people, they don't, those don't connect for some reason. I don't know why. But Paul is about to say something corrective in a very gracious way through a, through a gracious filter, um, if you want to say it that way. And um, one of the things that I think Paul understood, um, and let me, let me just bring up this next point, because it's really important here in light of the context, because as it relates to calling, and what I'm talking about is Paul's apostleship, and it, as it relates to his spiritual gifting, which is our context here, Paul was who he was to the church on the basis of God's grace alone. And, and Paul understood that. In fact, I want you to notice the balance with which he strikes here. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to start in verse 9. But I want you to see the balance with he, where he strikes here. We're going to see the same balance reflected in his instruction in Romans 12.3. But I just want you to see it kind of play out in his own thinking. So in verse um, uh, 8, so let's actually start there. Because he says, then last of all, speaking, speaking of Christ, he, Jesus, was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Now that's a very, that phrase, we won't get into the to the details this morning, but it's a very derogatory statement. It's basically saying like, like one who was stillborn, okay? It's kind of a derogatory statement toward himself, just saying, yeah, he wasn't even worthy. I mean, he was the last one to see him. And notice verse nine, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But notice this next phrase, verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. You see that, that back and forth? I'm the least of the apostles, yet I am what I am. I outworked them all, but not me, the grace of God that was with me. You see that, that balance back and forth? And we're going to see that play out in this instruction here. And, and one of the things that, that we're going to see in the area of spiritual gifts is this. You too are who you are by the grace of God. You too have a role in the body of Christ because you are who you are by the grace of God. And, and some of us probably need to take a more prominent role, a, a prominent uh, position or, or effort or ministry within the body. We're, we're holding back. 
And some of us may be pushing for that prominent position and, and some may need to step back a little bit. And the point is this, whatever God wants from you, that's what you should want for yourself. Nothing more, nothing less. And that's the whole point of spiritual gifts. And as Paul is about to say that, he's going to give these, these really, he's going to introduce us to these two extreme responses to spiritual gifts in the church. And there's, there's a couple of responses. And again, we're just looking at the, the, at the extreme. But the first typical extreme is this. We have a self-focus as it relates to our spiritual gifts. That can manifest itself in a couple ways. Either pride or arrogance In other words, we think what we do is the most important thing on the face of the earth. And if they didn't have us, they wouldn't have anything. We are God's gift to ministry, right? Or whatever. I mean, there's there's all sorts of form and fashion there. Or the opposite of that, but coming from the same source, the same self-focused source is self-deprecation, self-abasement beating yourself up. I've got no worth. I've got no value. I can't add anything. I don't, I don't have anything to add to the local body of Christ. And you are just as much in error as the one that's beating their chest from the front. You are in just as much error. There's, that is not humility. That is pride. It's the same source as the first one comes from. And so many people respond to spiritual gifts this way, very self-focused. I'm not worthy. I don't have it. I can't cut it. Or I'm the only one worthy. I'm the only one that has it. I'm the only one that can cut it, right? Two extremes there. But another type of extreme response is just outright non-use. And, and it's going to manifest itself in this way. Lack of interest, lack of engagement in the local church. Lack of interest or lack of engagement in the local church. That is what outright non-use is going to do. And see, Paul is going to give them two exhortations, both regarding how they should think. Again, going back to, we need to think. We need a renewing of our mind. And then one reason behind these exhortations. And so let's look at that first exhortation. This one um, is pretty easy to see in verse 3. He he says, uh, I through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And that's our first exhortation. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Um, you know, it's very simply put, you just think, uh, the temptation is to think of yourself as over and above other people, to consider yourself of great importance. Um, you know, and I, and I think that there's a tendency for believers, um, some believers, to view themselves in this way. In fact, uh, if you remember all the way back to the introduction to the book of Romans, do we remember where Paul was writing this letter from? Well, he's writing from the city of Corinth. Okay, Did Corinth have an issue with spiritual gifts? Yeah, see 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. See three chapters where he deals with their abuse of spiritual gifts and puffing themselves up, thinking that they had importance. And you can just imagine a meeting in Corinth as you read through those chapters where people are cutting each other off, almost tackling people out of the way so that they can talk. I got something much more important to say than Joe Blow over there. And so we start shutting people down and getting there early and eating the food and talking, uh, you know, stonewalling people. Um, to exercise your spiritual gifts. So Paul is seeing this up close and personal <laughs> in Corinth right now. And so what he might have been saying here to um, the, the church in Rome is, um, 
don't let this go on presently. Don't let it start. They might have been doing it there. But the point is this, when we, when we get to the, the realm of spiritual gifts, I think the phrase that has to keep swirling through our mind is this, I am what I am by the grace of God. I have a role in the body. That's the only thing I want to fulfill. If it's God wants this role fulfilled by me, then I'm all in. That's what I want. I don't want anything else. Nothing more, nothing less. That's the mindset of, of, of spiritual gifting and not thinking more highly of ourselves um, than we should. It's kind of a funny cartoon on overconfidence. This is going to end in disaster and you have no one to blame but yourself. Um, and being a cat fan, I would have loved to have seen the outcome of that one. Just kidding. Okay. So one of the things, though, as we see is, is if you don't have this view, it's, it, we need it because it's of great necessity and effective implementation of spiritual gifts. Remember, the, the whole goal of, of implementation of spiritual gifts, the whole goal of God is not that you look good to everybody or not that I look good to everybody. It's that he's building his church. He's, he's edifying his church. What is Jesus doing in our age? Well, he's building his church, and that's what he wants to accomplish through the spiritual gifting of believers. The second exhortation, um, notice, it, it, it's interesting. You know, don't think more highly of yourself, but then he doesn't think, doesn't say, okay, now think poorly of yourself. That's not the exhortation. It's think soberly. Think the right way about yourself. In fact, he says, to think soberly, and this word soberly um, is not to think poorly of yourself. It means to be sane, to be in one's right mind, to think and act discreetly, to use sound judgment and moderation, or to be self-disciplined. So how do we summarize that and put that in a more bite-sized uh, truth? It's simply this. If God's got a role for you in the body, you want to function in that role. You want to function in that capacity Nothing more, nothing less. That's what you want to function in. If you're not functioning in that role, then you're not fulfilling the design, the part, the role that God has got for you. And that's outside of his will, right? We just talked about knowing and understanding his will. Part of his will is that each believer who's been spiritually gifted would function according to their spiritual gifting. Sober thinking looks like this. Whatever my role is, I want to fulfill it to honor the Lord, to honor his wishes, to play a part in building his church. That's the goal of sober thinking. That's the goal of spiritual gifting. And so next week, we're going to continue verse three and jump into um, this section of spiritual gifts. And one of the things that we're going to look at next week is that last phrase, and we will spend some time on this phrase in verse three, uh, which says this, um, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And we're gonna see why that is so crucial and important in the exercise of spiritual gifts. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for the work uh, that Jesus accomplished for us. We desire this week to, to walk in light of these truths, to, to benefit from them. In our daily life, our, our ultimate goal is, is your goal, Lord. We want to be transformed uh, into his image. We want to consistently walk in dependence upon you so that you might receive uh, ultimate glory and honor uh, and praise from our lives. And we, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.